Well, today ends the Feast of Tabernacles, right? Uh, as we heard in the announcements, uh, tomorrow is the last great day. It's a separate festival, but picturing something absolutely glorious. I know we're looking forward to Mr. Siselka and uh, Mr. Weston's messages on the last great day. So today really pictures, in a sense, the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. And I'm oh, sorry, the end of the millennium. For us, it is the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, right? It's coming to a close, and very soon... Maybe the bearer of what seems like bad news. It's not bad news, but it seems like bad news. We'll all be going home. And all the things we've put off thinking about while we're here, we get to start thinking about again. And all the jobs we've taken a break from, we get to go back to. Yay! Uh, and I hope, I hope you feel a little bit, at least like I know I do, is I'm chomping at the bit. Uh, I can't wait. Uh, the feast fills you with all the things you can't wait to get doing again. To a certain extent, uh, setting a better example than you did before the feast, um, you know, doing something different, maybe with your Bible study, You're just getting back in the in the do of everything, actually doing things. In fact, I, I would dare say, at least for myself, I, I I will feel like I had failed here at the feast if somehow I didn't take part of the millennium back with me. Right. Somehow take part of that millennium back with me. Someone said, I wish I could say it was me. I wish I could even say it was someone in the church. It was something I heard a long time ago when I was a kid. I don't know who said it, but I thought it was a, a well-made point. They said, in many ways, you and I, individually you, may be the only Bible that some people ever read, right, in our lives. And I know what I want other people to read about is, is this. I want other people when they see my life to be reading about the coming kingdom of God in the pages that, that my life represents. And for me to be able to do that, I need to be filled with this. I need to be filled with, with what this day represents, with what these days have represented. You know, it's interesting if you, if you look at the brain. Has anyone got one on them? A brain? We could, no, you do. Don't take it out or anything. You need it. Uh, but if you were to look at the brain and you look at the neurons and the wiring in the brain, in the cortex in particular, it's a, a part responsible for a lot of very important things. Uh, if you lose your cortex, you're in trouble for the day. So in the cortex and you look at the, the neuronal wiring, a lot of that wiring is devoted to vision. Being able to see things with your eyes and not necessarily purely vision, but also the way in which you coordinate things with vision like touch. I can I can pick up my iPhone. I can look at it and coordinate getting my hand to my iPhone and picking it up or I can point to various people. But we're wired in such a way that vision is a dominant sense. It's very important to us. If you actually look at how much is devoted to to sight, sorry, to, to touch or even a sound. It's just, it just doesn't compare to how much we're wind, wired for vision. I don't think that's, I don't think that's just a coincidence when I see certain verses in the Bible. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews, in chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, we often call the heroes of faith chapter or the uh, hall of fame, faith hall of fame, uh, different words we give given 
how honoring Hebrews 11 is to those who have gone before us, those who've lived this life, those who've, who've conquered in this life, experienced blessings, experienced difficulties and trials, and have come through in a way that they stand as examples to all of us. And there's something that I, at least for me, that I always stands out to me when I read the passages. Uh, for instance, after talking about several, including Abraham and Sarah, uh, if we jump down to verse 13 of Hebrews 11, we read of these... And we read, these all died in faith. Hebrews 11, verse 13. Hebrews 11, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. You know, we have the common saying that seeing is believing. Right. I'll believe it when I see it. We often say, in fact, sometimes even if we're not looking at something, someone's trying to explain something to us and we can't understand it. And then finally it clicks in our brain. We go, oh, I, I see what you're saying. We don't mean we literally see the words coming out of their mouths. Oh, I see it floating in the air. I see it. It's just that's our word. That's our that's our word we use for when things click, when we get it. I get it. I see what you're saying. And. Here it is like seeing is believing, talking about why did they embrace these things? The bottom half of verse 11. Why did they embrace these things? Why were they able to confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth? Why were they assured of them, confident in them? It says because they saw them afar off. They could look down through the years of the future and they could see that it was coming. And yet the Bible doesn't talk about any special vision that they were given. It doesn't talk about the, the heavens being parted. Uh, you know, Jacob certainly saw the ladder and such like that. But it doesn't say that Abraham was given this grand vision of the kingdom to come and all of its detail and glory. But yet somehow they did see it. In their mind's eye, they, they saw what was coming. And by seeing it, they were assured of it. It was just as real to them as the world around them, perhaps even more so. In fact, there's a similar thing said of Moses a little bit later. It's not specifically about the kingdom, but it's very similar. In speaking about Moses later in the chapter, how did he get through everything? How, why was he able to put Egypt aside? When Egypt was very visible, Egypt was very tangible. He had lived in Egypt. He knew its power. If you trust some historical sources and, and nothing is inspired in the way the Bible is inspired, so we can't say they're all true, but he potentially had even commanded those forces. He knew the might of that nation. And yet he was able to shun it all, shun the wealth, shun the privilege, shun the access he had to luxuries and to comfort and able to choose, actively, voluntarily choose a far harder way of life, a far more irritating way of life, uh, shepherding God's people uh, and doing that work. Why? Well, if you jump down to verse 27 of Hebrews 11, it says, by faith, speaking of Moses, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. That is, Moses' life was lived as one who could see the invisible God. Now, admittedly, Moses later was given certain kind of visions, even shown a powerful uh, preview of God's glory. God had to show him his back, wouldn't show him his face. It's a fascinating passage if you haven't read it. And yet it's not talking about those, it's talking about early on. 
when he got a burning bush and he got a voice, but I said it was as if he could see God. And what a difference that makes in your life. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't want you to reflect on your sins right now real deeply, but if you were to think of the last thing you did poorly that you shouldn't have done, um, remember the thing you said to your wife this morning? Should have done better, right? Uh, you know, remember the last thing you said to the kids? No, I'm not going to raise my voice to the kids at all this feast. You know, whatever. Whatever it is. And imagine how you might have done differently if you literally saw Jesus Christ there in your home as a guest. Right? You might have already died a thousand deaths because of the way the floor looked and everything else, you know. But putting that aside, would you have behaved differently? Would we be bolder if we saw Jesus Christ? How more devoted would be we this way of life if we literally saw him? And yet at the same time, he's there. He's there. And Moses chose as if he saw him constantly. There was Pharaoh in all of his might. And yet Moses could look past Pharaoh and see as if, act as if he saw God. And Moses realized Pharaoh was tiny compared to that. We have to be able to see these things. One of my favorite uses of of the language of sight versus other senses uh, comes in job i won't turn there for the sake of time here in the introduction but when job is finally humbled and i dare say job was a man of remarkable faith i would say when it comes to faith if there were a faithometer he would probably peg the needle compared to many of us uh to say with passion and conviction that though he slay me yet i will trust him job was clearly a man filled with faith and belief and yet god was able to take him to the next level where he says wow all the things that i've been this is a paraphrase all the things i've been saying about you they may have been true and yet i didn't know the depth of how true they were it's like i didn't even know what i was talking about he says essentially in verse five is all this time it's almost like i've only been hearing about you and now i finally see you and his upgrade in the sense of who god is and what it means to be god have been supersized that much like going from hearing to to seeing you know god gives us this feast that we've been experiencing now today being the seventh day to help us see the kingdom to come more clearly to be able to begin to see the city to come as clearly as abraham did and as clearly as sarah did and to see the 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 god behind it all as clearly as moses did this feast is a gift for that and i hope we've been able to do that some i hope we've grown in that way i hope to help a little bit more in the time that we have remaining today what i'd like to look at today it's not going to be anything new if you've if you've labeled your notes today new revelation from speaker at the feast you can scratch that out nothing today is going to be is going to be new but that's part of the beauty of what god has given us you don't have to learn a bunch of brand new stuff you've never heard before before you recognize we have the greatest things in the world that are a part of our heritage from god what i want to talk about today are just some of the ways in which the world is going to change and to ask us are we able to see these things can we see these things in our mind's eye? God has given us imagination. God has given us a mind that can create pictures where there are none in our minds. And he wants us deploying that to be able to see the world that he's crafting for us. Because I guarantee you, anything we imagine, there's no way it's going to be better than what he's going to do. You're never going to imagine something so wonderful you think, 
ah, well, this is all right now that it's happened. You know, I imagine unicorns and macaroni and cheese every day. And uh, you know, it's not that. It's all right. It's never going to be better in terms of what we imagine than what the reality is going to be. And so cut loose. Imagine that world. Take the time to think about it. Today, I want to talk about just some facts, some realities about the world to come and ask if we can see them because we must somehow learn to see them. And the title of my sermon today is We Must See It. We must see it because those who will help Jesus Christ build that world will be those who have seen it coming before it arrived. We must see it. And I group these together in just a series of questions. And there are so many questions. If I leave myself time for the conclusion, which I probably won't, I'll try to reiterate. I'll try to sorry, list some of those questions you can ask yourself. You don't have to stop thinking about this after the feast, right? It's not like after sundown today or sundown tomorrow, you think, oh no, it's not a holy day. Kids, you're not thinking about the kingdom of God, are you? Cut it out. Stop. Stop. No, no, I see your face. You're smiling. You're thinking about it. Stop. It doesn't stop now, right? Hopefully this is, is priming the pump. So we're thinking about it that much more over the course of the next year. So by the time we come, we're prepped to go even to the next level ourselves. All right. So I'm going to phrase this as a series of questions. And again, it won't cover all the bases. First question. Can you, I'm asking you personally, and hopefully these questions will form something you can, you can ponder over the next year. Can you see a world of healing? Can you see in your mind's eye a world of healing like this world will experience over the course of a thousand years? You know, in many ways, Jesus Christ's ministry was a preview of the kingdom to come. So turn to Matthew chapter 4. We'll look at some verses there in Matthew chapter 4. But we know, and many of you have, have come across this scripture, maybe even dealt with it as a, as a quote-unquote difficult scripture. We have to be mindful. God didn't put scriptures in the Bible just for us to argue with our Baptist friends about, or our Catholic friends. They do argue. But he gave them to us to teach us things, right? And one of those things is in, in places where Jesus Christ says that uh, the kingdom is within you or the kingdom is among you. People often consider that difficult scripture or saying the kingdom something in your heart. It's not. Rather, Jesus Christ, the king of that kingdom, was among them. When the queen of England comes to America, it is England coming to pay respects or to visit or to to do whatever. He represents that kingdom. And in fact, his works represented that kingdom. When you read about the things that Jesus Christ did, in his ministry it was a small picture of what we're all going to do for a thousand years. You know, in Matthew chapter 4 starting at verse 23, Let's just read a few of the things that Jesus Christ did while he was on earth. In fact, John says, is it John or Luke? One of those guys said that you couldn't fill all the books in the world if you were to write all the things Jesus Christ did during that ministry. It was just, it was just amazing. But we get a summary here. Matthew chapter 4. This is the beginning of his ministry. Matthew 4 verse 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan because they saw these amazing things happening. And so they followed. 
it's easy to take for granted these things because we talk about them as if they're normal. They're not normal. In terms of it representing the kingdom, if just a few chapters later in chapter 11, I think this passage sort of helps connect the two, Christ's ministry and the kingdom. Because a couple of disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus Christ. And there's been different ideas. Was it John who had questions and sent his disciples to confirm Jesus was the Messiah? I guess it could be. I don't think so. It seemed John's faith was really solid. And John knew who his cousin was. I personally suspect, rather, the two disciples needed confirmation. And John said, yeah, go talk to him. You know, go talk to him. Go ask. Uh, because there's an understanding some disciples of, of John were, you know, maybe a little bit jealous. It says in the Bible that, that suddenly John is diminishing and Jesus Christ is the rising star. And John said from the beginning, no, no, I must diminish. He is the one who has to increase. He's the one it's all about. And so he sends his disciples, regardless of the reason we read about this. And to me, it highlights, what are they looking for? They're looking for the future king of Israel. They're looking for the Messiah. And he says, you go, you go ask him if he's the Messiah. And that's exactly what happened. So Matthew chapter 11 and verse 2, it says, When John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So he's asked, are you the coming Messiah? Are you the one who's going to rule the world under God? And he says, you go tell him these things. And he tells them the hallmarks of his ministry because those are hallmarks of the kingdom. The kingdom will be a time when the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. And even the poor who don't have access to the good things everyone else does have the good news of the gospel preached to them. It was a hallmark. Those things are a hallmark of the kingdom and the one who will reign over it. Again, we take these things. Well, I say we, I don't mean to indict some of you but it's easy to take these things for granted because we read about them in our bible a lot because a lot of it was happening but can you imagine living in a world can you see a world where that kind of healing is the norm let's just start with us we have a few hundred people here and i know because i've talked with some of you i know some of you suffer from ailments Right? Some of you, it's eyesight. Some of you, it's your legs. It's your back. It's you're tired of being tired. Are you tired of not being able to think straight because of something that happened when you were a kid? Some of you suffer from ailments that none of us know because they're not visible and they don't show themselves. And you suffer in silence and no one can look at you and tell, but you don't want to be that person that goes and tells every person about the things you're suffering. Can you imagine if through those doors, someone walked in, didn't have to be wearing like a movie bathrobe, you know, and have hippie hair, you know, and all the rest, just somebody walks in, some, someone nondescript. And it's not during service because that would be disruptive. Maybe it's during fellowship or something. And they begin going to these people and just laying a hand on them and saying, you know, be healed. God has relieved you of this. And 
next thing you know, somebody's walking that can't walk. Or someone who's been 95% blind for the last 15 years sees as well as a child with, with 20-20 vision or better. And maybe we're over here and we don't really know what's going on, but we hear a buzz over there. And we know something is going on. And next thing we know, we see Mr. Ceiling Wall, who we saw being pushed around in a wheelchair, running around and shaking everybody's hand. And there'd be a press to go over there. And imagine that happening and imagining it to you, those who suffer in silence and nobody knows. But that person comes to you and says, God knows. You've told no one. Be relieved of that burden. And you are. Imagine what that would do to this room. Imagine what it would do to all of us. How hard would it be to not somehow break into song like some musical out of Disney with that's good in quality. I just don't want to get into that. But how hard would it, at least in our hearts, to be singing about the God who does wonders, like it says in the Psalms. And then imagine that breaking out all over the world. In a world that doesn't have half the access to the things we do in the United States. Can we see a world in which that's the norm? We're told that it will be. I'm sure they're familiar and you've read these verses several times even this feast, but turn to Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah chapter 35. This world is filled with those who are fearful hearted. Those who do not feel strong. And those who need saving. We read in Isaiah chapter 35. Starting in verse 4. We're commanded, say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer. The tongue of the dumb sing. The waters burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. When God says something shall happen, it is more sure than anything you or I could say shall happen. I can tell you right now and be pretty sure about it. The sun's going to rise tomorrow. I look at prophecy and none of it seems to talk about the world ending in the next few hours, right? I feel pretty good about it. I feel pretty confident the sun's going to rise tomorrow. And I got to admit, maybe something could happen. Maybe the earth, there's a, you know, starts reversing direction because God, it's time to start messing with everybody's minds or something. I, you know, I don't know. All I know is I don't have the power to guarantee it. I know individually it may not rise for me. Right? When God says this is going to happen, it's more real than anything you or I could say. And he is saying in this time, this will happen. More than that, how will these things happen in the world? If we're trying to see that world to come, how is this going to happen? Because it's easy. It's easy for me to picture Jesus Christ walking around and doing these things. We, we read the Gospels. We picture these things. But turn to John in chapter 14. Turn to John chapter 14. And among the many things that Jesus Christ told his disciples before his crucifixion, among the many things he wanted to be able to tell them face to face. 
and make sure they understood so that when those apostles shared these truths with others, they could picture in their mind the very face of their Savior saying these things and assuring them of these things. And he says something marvelous in John chapter 14 and verse 12. John 14 and verse 12. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my father. Now, I'm not saying he's not talking about the works that the apostles and others would do after that. I'm sure that is a part of that. But do you understand that it doesn't end there? Do you understand that God looks forward to doing these things with you? Jesus Christ doesn't just look forward to, to putting his hands on the eyes of the blind and taking them away so that the first thing that those eyes see are their children or their parents. He looks forward to enabling you to do that. He looks forward to enabling me to do that. What illness, what malady that this world is currently rife with do you personally long to rid humankind of forever? What scourge of the flesh gnaws at you? Maybe you personally or because someone you know suffers from it and you long like nobody's business to make sure no one ever has to feel that again and ever has to suffer from that again. Paint that into your painting so you can see that world that Jesus Christ longs to bring and enact through us because he longs to create a world of healing and longs to do that through all of you and me. All right, another question. Can you see a world of compassion? Can you see a world of compassion? And I'll populate at least this part of the sermon with a little little confession. Can you see a world of compassion? We had read earlier, I won't turn there again, but in Matthew chapter two, Jesus Christ talked about how one of the one of the representation one of the evidences that the king of the kingdom was present is that the poor had the gospel preached to them. The poor had the gospel preached to them. So confession. I'm not here to confess all my sins because they're none of your business, right? Uh, between me and God, regrettably, my family to a certain extent because they have to live through them. So I'm not going to confess everything, but I will confess this. And, and I, I do it because I, I know I, I've seen it in others sometimes and I know I've, I've seen it in myself. Sometimes I have a hard time having compassion for the poor or for those who are needy for whatever reason. You know, it's interesting. I read an article just this week that was really helpful while on one hand confirming some things I knew at the same time helping expand my my brain a little bit about it it was talking about the the homeless situation in uh, I'm gonna get the city wrong I think it's San Francisco I think it's San Francisco because it is just skyrocketing because they keep passing measures to try to help the homeless and the measures just keep making things worse you know they want to stop AIDS amongst uh, people who are using uh, syringes for drugs. And so in mercy, it's easy to think, oh, they're trying to encourage drug use. Stop thinking that way. Just because someone does something you think is dumb doesn't mean they do it for evil reasons. It's a lot easier just to assume that people are stupid. 
and not judge them, right? Don't judge them as, as, as evil. Judge them as stupid. It's easier. Sometimes give me a break and don't judge me as evil. Just consider me stupid. No, I'll, I'll appreciate that. And so people think, well, you know, I know it seems crazy. They're going to do these things anyway. Let's just make sure they have clean needles and offer services that might, that might clean them up. Well, often these people aren't taking advantage of those services, but they are taking advantage of the clean needles. And what they're finding in the trash and in the gutters are these same used syringes, partially filled with heroin, partially filled with human blood. And they're multiplying in the trash of the city. So that now everyday people that don't have these problems are having to be careful where they walk because they're syringes bare naked and open and exposed here and there, sometimes used by people who have HIV. And so it's something that seemed like a compassionate solution just makes things worse. It talked about those who, who have found that, man, man, if you're going to be homeless, this is the place to be homeless. And sometimes they're not taking advantage of the care that's available because it would be a change in their life and it's easier to take advantage of the services than to strive to give up the addictions. And sometimes it's it's... It's too easy for me. Again, for me. Maybe it's none of y'all. If so, fine. Be that way. But at least for me, it's too easy sometimes to write those people off and go, you know, what's wrong with them? They should want to get their act together. They should want to do better. And I have to think of a few things. One is, how many times is God irritated at me that I haven't gotten over blank yet? Right? And is he up there just going, man, get over it. What is wrong with you? I'm so irritated. I don't want to talk to you anymore. Thankfully, he still does. Right? And also then I have to look in the Bible because the Bible is our mirror. The Bible is meant to reflect to us what we really are as well as show us what we should be. And all I know is while the Bible does give a lot of advice about doing well for yourself and the wise things to do, when I look at verses about the poor in the Bible, I see the God of heaven expressing more sympathy than condemnation. I'm not saying, you know, it's, 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 it's difficult. We live in a world where it's, it's a great phrase. It's a true phrase. Give a man a fish and feed him for a day. But teach a man to fish and he can feed himself for a lifetime. And I look forward to a coming world where we're not just handing out fish. We're teaching people to fish. Mr. Weston will probably be in charge of that particular part of the kingdom, teaching people to fish. But in this world... You see people that just keeping, uh, sorry, continue giving people fish, not even seeming to care, though surely they do, that it's making them more dependent, more and more dependent on the handout, even though it's ruining the rest of their life, continue thinking that's compassion. Then you have others who will spout the phrase, ah, giving people fish, you're ruining their lives. Teach them to fish, teach them to fish, but then doing nothing to teach them to fish. Like somehow the little proverb gives them an excuse to do nothing and to just forget the poor because they don't impact their lives. All I know is God has compassion on them. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that people who come into poverty like that, or at least in these homeless circumstances, it's not always poverty, uh, is not because of actions of their own and not because when they're asking for money for a sandwich, they really want a sandwich. Uh, I remember one particular case, my wife and I were, were doing a circuit I think it was between Cincinnati and, and Columbus and happened to have some Subway sandwiches for, for lunch in the, in the car, still wrapped up and everything. And it was at a gas station and we had to fill up for the, for the rest of the trip. And a 
ostensibly homeless guy. I don't know if he's really homeless, but he, you, you saw him. He's there on the parking lot. He's there in the, in, in the gas station. He's going person to person. So you know what's, you know what's coming. I'm sitting in the car and he knocks on my window. So I roll down my window and he says, Hey man, I'm embarrassed to even ask, but I just want to, I just, I just need a little money for a sandwich. I haven't eaten all day. I just need a little money for a sandwich. And if you've got even a dollar or two, I said, this is your day. I've got more than a dollar or two. I've got a new, brand new wrap Subway sandwich. Never been open here. And he went, uh, and he just, he waved his hand and went away because he didn't want a sandwich, right? He was probably looking for drugs or, or hooch, you know, moonshine or whatever. I don't know what it was. You know, that's what he was probably looking for. I don't know. I don't know. So I'm not pretending. I'm not trying to say that, that all these people are somehow saints. One of the great things about the Bible is it is not a respecter of persons. It doesn't raise the poor above the rich nor the rich above the poor. Well, I know I was changed in one circumstance when my wife and I were in Berlin and we were on a, a metro train between, between cities. I think we were actually leaving. I think we were on the way to the airport. I'm not sure. All I know is I think I was just about out of cash. That's important for the story. I'm not giving anybody a credit card and saying, go have fun. Uh, but on the train, the trains, it was, it was multiple cars, but the, the door between them was open somehow. So you could actually walk between the cars, even as it's bending and such. And I, on the far end that you could get in at one stop, some fella got on and I, I knew he was on by the smell before I could see him. And I, I freely say, and I've raised four boys, um, I've never smelled anything like that. It was, it almost seemed inhuman, but you knew it wasn't. And I saw him and his clothes were matted. And they weren't matted like an actor or Hollywood Matt's clothes. They were matted by real life. And what he had been living. And what he had seen. And what his day-to-day -day life was. And he's walking down the car. And there weren't that many of us on there. But he's shuffling, not even making eye contact. He's just looking at his feet. And he's got a card of some sort. And he, he, he'll walk to someone and kind of show it to him. And then wait a while and then just keep moving. And he's getting closer and closer. And you wouldn't think that the stench of the person could get any stronger, but it did. It just continued to be intense. And I just kept thinking, this is not a place I want to be, is on this train right now. Both for my physical, it was, I really did feel nauseated. Uh, and just the discomfort of the situation. He came to me and showed the card. And, and honestly, I can't remember the details of the card. But if, if I do recall at all, it was essentially, that that there was an address there and and if i wanted a subscription to something like a little magazine or something that it was a it was a legitimate thing it was like a, someone makes these these magazines to help the homeless and gives them an opportunity to to sell them you know so they're not stealing money they're literally trying and i all i can say is i didn't i didn't have anything then he'd never even made eye contact with me and I was close to the door and that was the last place he could have gone and we stopped again and he, and he got off. Now let me say, I don't know how that man came to be in that condition. I have absolutely no idea. I don't know if it was drinking and drugs, if he had truly actively made tr uh, sinful, purposeful choices in his life and had done wrong willingly by his family. I have no idea. I don't know if it was... Uh, some sort of uh, a mental disease 
that is part of the reason that it's, it's, it's a great challenge with the homeless. Many of them are people that, that, that have problems with their brain and that's just where they end up. It's a place where they collect. I don't know if it was an addiction that drove him there. I don't know what it was. All I know is I am about as certain as I can be as a human being. There is no way on this earth that he ever had a day when he thought to himself, I can't wait till I'm covered in my own filth and have to walk among other human beings like an animal or human refuse. No one chooses that. It's not that we don't come to these places in our life by not making choices. Choices are often involved. But turn to Jonah chapter 4. You know, the tale of Jonah, Jonah was sent to prophesy so that Nineveh would not be destroyed. And we're not going to get distracted by it. Nineveh was eventually prophesied to help destroy, you know, God's people, you know, the physical people there. Uh, you know, you've got the Assyrians that were going to be coming in and we're going to be wiping out Israel. And Jonah didn't want to. It's kind of like imagining you, you somehow know World War II is coming and it's going to be devastating to France and you're a Frenchman and, and, and Berlin's sinning and God sends you as a Frenchman. Oh, well, go, go prophesy to, to Berlin. I want them in good shape. You know, I want him, I want him, uh, want him to be able to repent. It's like, oh, I'm not going to do it. You know, he tries to hide and he can't. And so he's a reluctant prophet. He does his job and they repent. And Jonah feels bad about it. Jonah wishes they didn't repent. He's moping, stupid Ninevites, getting their act together and everything. You know, so he goes to a place to pout about it. And God wants to point something out to him. And so God makes this tree grow. I won't go into detail. And it shades Jonah. Oh, and he's, he's, he takes delight in it. He's got some food and such. And then next thing you know, you know, a, a hot wind comes and blows the tree. It just withers away to nothing. And now he's in a worse mood. Oh, it's a good tree. You know, all this. At least I had a tree. Not a tree's gone. Man, what a terrible day. Anyway, God talks to Jonah about it. And in verse 9, God says to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And this is what a bad boo we know Jonah's in, is he talks back to God. I, I, God does not allow this to happen a whole lot. Let's understand that. I don't recommend this for your prayers. But Jonah says, yes, it is right for me to be angry even to death. <laughs> yeah, right, wow, right? Jonah, come on, man, right? But God was trying to make a point to Jonah. You know, God hasn't given up on any of us when maybe we've even done things that are similar. Verse 10, it says, but the eternal said, you've had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a day. Sorry, came up in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left? And much livestock to boot? Animals that don't know any better? Now, people have debated, don't know their, between their right hand and their left. Often we think of children that way. Don't know their right hand from their left. And maybe he's just referring to, to children. But there's other thoughts that he's really talking about all of Nineveh. Notice they didn't know all of God's laws. They certainly weren't just returning to God's laws. God never gave them the revelation that he had given Israel. 
And in Nineveh, a lot of these people did not know their right hand from their left. He's telling Jonah, look, you didn't do anything for this plant, right? None of your effort went into it. It came up in a day. It's a plant. It's gone. Every human being in Nineveh, he says, I know by name. Those are lives. And I watched them. I've seen them born. I know what's ahead for them. I have a future for them. It may not be in this time. But there's a time when they and Israel and Egypt will be together. A part of my heritage. A part of, of people I love. I've seen every moment of their lives. And you care more about a plant that lasted a day than people I've been cultivating for my own purposes. Whose lives I'm invested in. When regardless of why that fellow on that train was in such a circumstance, God and Jesus Christ know his every day. They know his every experience. And they long to bring a world in which not only he will not experience life like that again, but no one in the world will. Now turn to Luke chapter 9. As we're talking about Christ bringing a world of compassion. Luke chapter 9. In verse 54. We have the time where Jesus and his disciples want to go through a Samaritan village. But they found out he was going to Jerusalem. And everybody was racist back then. So uh, they said, oh, no, you're going to Jerusalem. You're, you're not the kind of Jew we want going through here because you don't like our kind. We don't like you. you want to go to Jerusalem? You can go around. Now, you can go around. You're not going through our village. And James and John were upset. And it's easy to pick on James and John as being hotheads because apparently they were. They don't name you sons of thunder unless you got a little bit of heat under the collar. But at the same time, who knows what they endured? Were, were the people spitting at them? Were they throwing rocks? Saying, keep it a distance around our city. You know, it's easy to pick on people. And then we get shortchanged at the grocery and what happens to our brain, right? So keep in mind, they're just human beings. So it says when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? And he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you're of. You are that quick. To punish like that even when the offense is great he says do you know what spirit that is he said it's not mine he's saying rather verse 56 for the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives but to save them but to save them you know there will be punishment in the kingdom we'll get to that here in just a moment but i feel the need to highlight that's not what christ is coming for he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wants to save these lives. Now, who's going to help him do that? You know, we won't turn there for the sake of time. But in Isaiah, it talks about how beautiful the feet of those who bring the gospel are upon the mountains. Anyone bringing the good news someplace that does not have it, their very feet are beautiful. And think about it, I don't know about you, but my feet are not my comeliest uh, feature. 
right? Especially back then, you're close to the ground and there's rocks and there's thorns and there's the rest. They had some tough feet. They had Tarzan level, tough feet. Some of them, you know, back at that time. And yet, if it's someone who's bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, that it has come to this place as well, it says, beautiful are those feet. That's Isaiah 52 and verse 7. Those will be your feet. Those will be my feet. That fellow on that train will have one day the opportunity to turn to someone that could be you or me. We know in other verses, again, I'll just note it for the sake of time, but in Micah, it talks about how everyone will sit under his vine and under his fig tree and no one shall make him afraid. Why? Because the mouth of the eternal of hosts is spoken. A man that has nothing in this world but his filth-crusted clothes and a card will have a vine and a fig tree. And that implies more. It implies a home, a place to live. You know, it should be rough, just a vine and a fig tree. You know, imagine that same fellow on the train. If somehow he survives into the millennium. And imagine a completely different circumstance where he's clean. And he's healthy. And the air smells of lilacs or something like it ought to. And he's sitting under his vine because he had told his neighbor to come over and he's waiting for him to show up. Under his fig tree, rather. And he's looking at his house and looking in the windows. And there's a wife. There's a wife. And though he can't see them because the window's not all the way to the ground, he knows just under the sill are three kids he's been able to have because of the new life that he's been given. And the opportunity he could not find his way to reach in this world because he doesn't know his right hand from his left in this life. But now he knows. And he looks toward the east and sees a glow on the horizon and knows that's where that king lives. That's where my king lives who brought these things to me. Can we see a world of compassion? A world that surely Jesus Christ longs to bring here himself. We have to see it. Next, can we see a world of real peace? Not pretense. You know, often peace is really just people waiting to start fighting again. Right? It's, it's like, okay, well, we're keeping the bullets and we're keeping the guns and we're keeping the tanks and we're keeping the boats because eventually we're going to want to kill each other again. So it's not peace, it's a pause. Right? It's not peace, it's a pause. And yet, familiar verse, we won't turn there also for the sake of time, but please note it. If you hadn't read at least once this feast, you need to. In Isaiah, we hear about the names that Jesus Christ will be called in the millennium. He says he'll be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. It's Isaiah 9 and verse 6. Prince of Peace. He'll be known for peace. That peace that will eventually, not at first, but eventually spread over the whole world, will be achieved in multiple ways. I'd like to read a passage from Zechariah. I'm going to turn to Zechariah 14. And I'm going to start reading in verse 16. However, I'm not going to read from a good Bible. Um, I'm not going to read from the King James or the New King James. I'm going to read from a terrible Bible. 
In fact, if your Bible matches what I'm about to say, please throw it away. You have permission to burn it safely because it's not a real Bible. You know, if the devil were passing out Bibles, it might be this one. Uh, it's the WIV, the woefully inaccurate version. And I'm going to ask you, I know as ministers, we don't generally do this, but don't read your Bible right now. We'll read, we'll read the next part. But if you read your Bible, you're going to read the real words and it's just going to mess you up. So let me read from this version first. Then we'll read from a real Bible. Zechariah chapter 14. And I'm going to start in this terrible Bible in verse 16. We read there, and it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came up against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the eternal of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the eternal of hosts, they shall receive from the king a strongly worded letter. The letter will give them 30 days to respond. And if there is no response, they will receive another letter and another 60 days. Because clearly 30 days wasn't enough and they, they need more time. And if there is still no response, then the king shall submit his wishes to the United Nations. And the United Nations shall vote as to whether or not they shall officially declare that nation to be a very, very naughty nation. But only if there is no veto among the other nations. All right, that's garbage, right? That's essentially the world today. And we might wish it were different. We might wish there was strong power to fix the problems in the world, but it's just in the hands of other men. And next thing you know, you're the problem, right? Mr. Armstrong used to say, we need a strong hand from somewhere, a particular somewhere. And the world will have that. What does it actually say? In verse 17, it actually says in Zechariah 14, it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the eternal of hosts, on them there shall be no rain. Because it will not simply be a dictator or a warlord or an emperor even. It will be the creator of the planet who reigns in Jerusalem. You know, I imagine, this is me, this is fantasy, and I have to be upfront. I don't think it's going to be anything like this. But I do love picturing this so much. And so it is the movie I play in my head. So I imagine a nation. We always pick on Egypt because the Bible mentions Egypt. You know, the Bible says if Egypt doesn't come up, give Egypt a break. They might actually do it, right? You know, maybe it'll be some other country, you know, poor Egypt, but maybe it's Egypt. So let's say Egypt doesn't come up. Someone doesn't come up. And the warlord of that nation is standing on the border of his country because he knows the threats. He says, you better come up. He's like, yeah, I'm not coming up. Right? So I got my army here. Of course, it's after the tribulation and stuff, so it's a lot of sharpened sticks. They're still working on making swords again or whatever spears. But, you know, they're ready. It's sharpened sticks. They want to go to that Feast of Tabernacles because they heard it's a Jewish God that's supposed to be in charge now. Right? Yeah. Yeah, my mom and dad had taught me. He said, you know, I'm not going to worship any Jewish God. And so he's got his army of men with pointed sticks, and they're on the border waiting for it to come. Not even care if they win. Right? Because if he's going to go down, it's going to be all Bon Jovi, a blaze of glory, right? You know, if he's going to go down, he doesn't care, right? Because he's going to show this Jewish God in Jerusalem that he will not bow to his wishes. So he's got his guys, you know, sharpened sticks, and it starts raining on all of them. And he's like, oh, this is even better. 
Because I remember seeing that Super Bowl on American, cursed devil American television once, and the players were playing in the rain, and it did look so glorious, and now it's on me. Now, you know, and he's standing there, and the, the rain's on him, and it's dripping off his elbows. This will be even better. I can't wait. Come, bring it, bring it, King from Jerusalem. And then the strangest thing happens, is it stops raining. Like that. Like a snap. But oddly, he's right at the border, and it's raining right over there. Why is it raining there? And it's not raining here. So he tells his vast army of pointed stick men, hey, hang on, hang on a minute. And he walks over to the rain. But somehow everywhere he walks in the rain, there's nothing like above him, like a dry spot following him, like the opposite of Eeyore, for those that remember Winnie the Pooh, right? If anything, the sun's hitting him and it's hot. It's like, what in the world? What is going on? So he runs back and it's still not raining. Then he looks at the rain-soaked ground and seemingly supernaturally, the water just seeps away from the soil. And you see it start to crack under his feet because it's so dry. And he thinks, yeah, we might be in for a little bit of a difficult time. Now, let me say, I personally don't think it's going to happen like that. I just think it's fun to talk about because uh, I really think it could be far more normal. They're just waiting for rain and it's not coming. What's going on? What's going on? I have no idea. Really, but Jesus, could Jesus Christ do that? He's God, right? Kind of showing off maybe a little bit, right? But you know, for some people, you want to show off. Some people need to see that you're not dealing with a human ruler, this isn't a tyrant. It's not a, it's not a Saddam Hussein or a Hitler. It's not even a president or a prime minister. It's God Almighty who said, you have an appointment with me. Show up. And there will be peace. It won't be willingly for some after a while. They will show up that next Feast of Tabernacles. They'll be hungrier. They'll be more compliant. But they'll show up and see a world and what it's like to live in a world that is obeying that God. And they'll want some of that for themselves. Nations will either learn to fear the Lord at the Feast of Tabernacles like we should. Or they'll learn to fear him in their homes. But all will learn to fear him. There's a reason also in Isaiah 9 verse 6. He's called mighty God. He will have the ability to make sure there is peace. Let's look at one additional passage. Ezekiel 38. In terms of peace by force. Ezekiel 38. As we understand it, this is a prophecy of a time in the millennium. And we know it's not the current day. Some actually in the Protestant world and others try to use this as a prophecy of our current day. Because it's clearly an attack on Israel. And it talks about, you know, here's Israel living peacefully and without walls. But I tell you, Israel is not living peacefully without walls. As in, we were in Israel just recently and there are literal walls, right? There are walls there. There's barbed wire. They're patrolled every 15 minutes dragging the sand so they can see if there's footprints. On the other side of the fence. I've seen more machine guns now in my life. Uh, in the airport there. and other places. In Israel. Because they don't live at peace. This is not a prophecy of today. This is a prophecy of the millennium. When Israel has been restored. And there truly are no more need for walls. Because when God is fully present. And living among you. There is no need for walls. So we have an event early in the millennium. 
It says in Ezekiel 38 and verse 10, thus says the Lord eternal on that day, it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you'll make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates. And these will be people that haven't lived in this kind of circumstance for a long time. And when they saw someplace without bars and gates, it was a vulnerability. And so in verse 12, it says it's in their mind to take plunder, to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against a people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods and who dwell in the midst of the land. Jump to verse 16. God says here, you will come up against my people, Israel, like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. Thus says the Lord eternal, are you he of whom I have spoken in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? And it will come to pass at that time, at the time when God comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord eternal, that my fury will show in my face you ever been a kid and you know you're not on the happy side of mom and dad but it's still kind of going all right and you're not repenting like you should already and then that face change happens god's face change happens at this point he says i will show my fury in my face he says verse 19 for in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath, I've spoken. Surely in that day, there should be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. So the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. He wants the world to know what has happened. They will hear word. They will hear word. The ground will shimmer. Think, wow, something's happened. And they'll find out what this was. It says, the mountains shall be thrown down. The steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord eternal. Every man's sword will be against his brother. And I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him. Flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself. And I will be known in the eyes of many nations then they shall know that i am the eternal he will want to make sure everyone in the world is put on alert the united states did that with an atomic weapon the world learned the united states could wreak more devastation in the world than anybody else at the time god wants that but up to several levels recognizing this isn't just a nation that can blow up your city this is a being who will throw a mountain at you there's going to be some peace because that's all some people know. And yet others will be willing to learn. Uh, we're already in, oh no, we're actually not in Isaiah. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 59. Those who have been forced to want to learn to realize there's a better way. And those who just simply already do and may not need forcing because there are wise kings out there striving to serve their people leaders who care about their people and just can't figure out a way just can't find a way why isaiah 59 and verse 8 it says this is verse 8 of isaiah 59 the way of peace they have not known there's no justice in their ways they've made themselves crooked paths whoever takes that way shall not know peace even when they're trying, they can't put it together. But the prince of peace will be on the earth and he'll require them, send people to me at least once a year. 
and let me teach them and they will take it back to you. The Bible says that kings of other lands will send their princes to serve in Israel, not as lesser people because somehow they're slaves and lesser human beings, but because they want to learn what Israel has to bring it back to their own, to bring it back to their own people. They will want to learn a familiar passage. We won't turn there for the sake of time, but in Isaiah chapter two, it talks about how they will beat their swords into plowshares. Weapons of war being turned into implements of peace. And I have to give credit to Mr. Marshall Moloff last year at the feast in Texas. He, he really opened my mind about what it means to be a sword, uh, in this day and age. And, uh, I remember imagining a scenario, imagine in Hawaii for a particular reason in Hawaii. And imagine a people in Hawaii. Now, Hawaii probably won't be in the same place because all the mountains and islands will be moved. It might be a different shape, but let's say there's still a Hawaii of some sort. And there's people there and it's the millennium and they're reigning and they've had peace, but they've been given a huge task. And one that doesn't really make sense, even though the, the plans and details are incredibly specific. And they're to build on this long stretch near the mountains there. These weird structures, they're super sturdy with not a thing on top of them. And they're at various angles. And every once in a while, either one of the foremen or even one of the children of God themselves has to come and say, I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Ceiling Wall, you're going to have to do this one again. It really needs to be at 22 degrees and you've got it at 23. I know that's very specific, but there's a lot to be done. I need it just right. Maybe there's a little frustration, but uh, okay, all right. Uh, they start over and they build these strange structures out of metal and wood that just extend for a few miles even until finally it's done and they see the plans are done and a child of God appears and says, thank you all for working so hard because you've set up the next work to come. And while he's talking, they see over the horizon and floating in midair are these old battleships and carriers and tankers that have been destroyed in years past. Weapons of war, things that have been used for wrong purposes. As they float over the heads of the people, they're still dripping water. And they feel the salt and taste it in their mouths. And the ships, just floating in midair, rest on these structures till they creak under the weight. But do not break. Because they've been built to specifications. And the child of God looks at all of them and says, make us some plowshares. And all of that gets turned into something wonderful purposes that we could possibly even scarcely imagine. Remember, they're going to have to be getting ready for the last great day. Could be 60 to 80 billion people coming up or so. Can we imagine scenes like that? Because even if that's fantastic, even if it seems strange, we know the world to come will be better. We know that wonders await. A world of peace. Can you see a world with no fear? Can you see a world with no fear? The Bible says that old men and women will be in the streets of Jerusalem again. And that children will be playing in its streets. It says that in Zechariah chapter 8. You know, there are places in the world and there will be a time definitely in Jerusalem where old men and children would not want to be seen in the streets. Why old men and women? Because those are the most vulnerable amongst us. And they're playing out in the open again. Because it's a world that is safe. A world that doesn't have fear. Can you see a world with no fear? What would it be like to live with no locks on our doors? 
Well, ours. Hopefully we're in the family of God. But for the people there, to have no locks on their doors, to have no bars on their windows. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Many chapters back. Isaiah chapter 11. A familiar passage, and I, and I, I do not mean to say that it means something different than it does. Isaiah chapter 11. We'll start in verse 4. We all should read this passage at least once during the feast. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 4. We read of Jesus Christ, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with his breath, with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. How can they do this? Because it says in verse 9, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the eternal as the waters cover the sea. Now, hopefully we believe this and take it for face value. As we've heard many times, Mr. Ames has said, he, he's quoted another fellow, uh, but it's a great thing that when the, when the word of God makes common sense, then don't try to make it make any other sense. Just accept it. Accept that the nature of animals will be worked with and changed. We're feeding this huge, huge bull. I'm not kidding. Biggest bull I've ever seen in my life. And I come from Texas. So, you know, and it was huge. And in, in, in Mount Snow, we're feeding it hay and it's eating all the hay you can give it. Uh, it was gigantic. And someone said, now imagine this is a lion. And suddenly it was a lot cooler. You know, you know, imagine you're feeding hay, you know, to, to a lion. Uh, predators won't be predators anymore. You know, it's, why would a child stick its arm down a hole? Well, it's a child, right? Uh, you know, even four boys, I'm always terrified they're going to stick their arm down a hole. Uh, I remember I'll, I'll, uh, one boy in particular. I won't say which one because they're here and it'll embarrass them. But anyway, the second one said, uh, <laughs> we were at the zoo once and this squirrel, we saw a squirrel run into, we were, they were little, we saw a squirrel run into a trash can. And just kid was like, oh, there's a squirrel. And he runs up and sticks his face in the trash can. And that thing was like a ninja. The squirrel like, Wah! you know, it jumped out because all it saw was the sun being blotted by something. And, and who knows? He didn't know it was a predator. And I can tell you what, some number two didn't know it was a predator. And he's like, what? And he backed up and he's scared. And, and oh boy, that was terrifying for both of them. The squirrel and, and the sun. Because it's a world of, that's red in tooth and claw. Everything is out for itself. The squirrel doesn't know any better. And my son didn't know any better. Right? It was just teeth and claws and danger and the idea that there will be blood. Right? It was terrifying. And so in that world, you'll have children do what children do. There's going to be a hole where a snake lives. They're not thinking they're going to be sticking their arm in there. I wonder what's in here. Oh, I hope it's a snake. Right? I hope it's a snake. And the Bible says, you know what? They won't have to fear predators anymore. No one will have to fear predators anymore. And what is the greatest predator of all? It's humanity. I'm not anti-hunter, just so you know. Kill it and eat it. I love nothing than freshly killed animal. Nothing better, right? I'm not saying don't. 
I'm speaking of the different kind of predator, how man will prey on man to take advantage of him, to abuse him, especially the weakest of our society. You know, today the cobra's dens can even be our schoolyards, can be neighborhoods where a sexual predator lives that no one has identified yet. You know, we were in Atlanta uh, on the way to the feast, the trip that went better. We were in Atlanta and saw all these signs that I'd never seen before. That maybe I mentioned in the previous sermon. If I did, I apologize. I'll just mention one more time about, about human trafficking. Why? Because it happens all the time. If you're traveling with your children, be careful. I hate to have to say that. You know, even now there are, are children living in places where all they know is abuse. That's their whole world. Do we not think that Jesus Christ doesn't long to fix that? I don't mean this as a blasphemous metaphor, and I think you'll understand, but can you imagine how Jesus Christ must be straining at the leash, just waiting for his father to say, go save them. Go stop that. We've waited long enough. And it's time to make sure this never happens to anyone ever again. And can you imagine being a part of that? Because how will Jesus Christ do that? It says in Psalm 149 that this honor have all the saints. That is bringing justice to the world. Stopping the wrong. Crushing, if necessary, those who would harm and those who would hurt. I can imagine, I can see a world in which a child that has never known anything but a terrible life and hears those noises coming down the hall again and knows what happens next and is trembling in a corner. And then out of nowhere, for a reason the child could not understand and will not be told, the noises stop. And they don't keep coming closer. But then the door does open. And it's you. And you have the opportunity to walk up to that child who suddenly, for some reason, does not know why it feels so much more calm and scoop it up in your arms and say, don't worry. In the name of the King of Jerusalem, I can guarantee you those things will never happen again. They will never happen again. Can we see a world like that? God needs us to be filled with that world. Because the more we are filled with it, the more we will long to make it so. And even the work will benefit because we'll long to make sure others know it's coming as well. There's so many more things we could ask. I'd love to sit down with some of the kids and talk about what cities will be like. Because I have no idea. I, I've thought, are they going to be big like mega cities and just beautiful and shiny like Star Trek land or something? Are they all going to be rural villages of some sort and everybody's got gardens and this and that? I don't know. 
All I know is I see kids trying to build them out of Lego and they look really cool, right? There are so many things to talk about as we converse with one another and as we try together, working together to try to picture a world that we all want, but more than all wanting it, a world that he says, I will bring. I'm coming to bring that world. And I so want you to be a part of making it with me. Don't let this feast end without starting that kind of process that will continue through the rest of the year where you ask yourself those kind of questions, where you talk to each other about them, where we strive, strive hard to the limits of our imagination, asking God for more imagination if we need it to be able to see the world that he sees so clearly himself. A world that to him is more real than the world we have with us today. And a world that he longs to be more real for us than the world around us today. Because those who will get to make that world with him will be those who can see it today.